We're, uh, we're actually closing a series, we're actually finishing a series called The Real Jesus, and um, the theme of the series has been this very simple idea. It's my Jesus, your Jesus, and the real Jesus, and there might actually be a difference between all of that, right? My Jesus, your Jesus, and the real Jesus, and we've said it every week, we've had some fun with it, that if I went to every person in the room and asked you to describe what Jesus was like and who he was and what he was like to you, you would say something, you know, maybe something a little different than the person across the way, or um, you'd have your maybe your own unique way of kind of describing who uh, Jesus is. And so what we wanted to do, even though there's some things we'll agree about, there might be some things that we don't agree about in terms of my Jesus and your Jesus. There's some things that distinguish the real Jesus. There's things that mark the real Jesus that we want to make sure that as followers of Christ, that we're following, that we are uh, linking into. Okay, so the first week was Easter, and we talked about authority. Okay, so we talked about the fact that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. Okay, so what the, the benefit to that for us is that there's really nothing that you're ever going to deal with that falls outside of the authority of Jesus, right? There's nothing you're praying for right now that does not fall under his authority if all authority belongs to him. It's not just something to give us a big, deep breath. It should, it, should, um, it should kind of fill us with joy. It's something that we should be excited about. However, we, we also said this just to make sure we were challenged that the authority we live by really does reveal the Jesus we follow. And so if it's not all authority, if it's just authority in some areas and it's my authority in others then, and it's the world's authority here, then the problem is we might be following your Jesus and my Jesus, but we may not be following the real Jesus. Last week we talked uh, specifically about his personality. That there's a reason that Jesus came, that there was a reason he came in person, right? He is fully God, but also fully man, and that his person, his personality um, was there on display to help us better not just follow a deity, but to connect relationally and understand relationally a person, understand who God was. Uh, Jesus kept telling the guys, like everybody that asked him, you know, you want to see God, you want to see the Father. If you've seen me, you've experienced me, you've experienced God. And so I used uh, the book Beautiful Outlaw uh, by John Elder just to bring out a few things. Uh, these are some of the ones we talked about last week, his playful joyfulness, his fierce intention, uh, his scandalous freedom. And just use some stories. You have to go back and watch it, but use some stories to help kind of des describe all of those things. There's all these, com the complexity of you is the same complexity that Jesus wanted to help you understand about God as well. But he did it for a reason. Today, as we finish the series, I want to focus on two ideas, two dynamics, two characteristics, if you will, that we probably all agree about. However, we may not agree about them to the same degree as someone else. Like we may agree on the surface, but we may kind of have some push, some give and take on these two ideas that seem like they're opposing, but they're actually uh, something very unique together. We're going to use the book of John today, uh, the Gospel of John. Uh, we know John wrote this later in his life There's through a lot of the lens of wisdom and, and kind of thematically wrote it. As a matter of fact, John 1 is kind of more of a poem as he describes, you know, the light and the darkness and Jesus is the word that became flesh. And so this is how John described Jesus, right? This is how he said, look, I want you to understand that we have been witnesses of Jesus, the real Jesus. I want to do my very best to describe him to you. And so here in John 1, 14, it says, the word, that's Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. He's talking about the people that are living at that time. We have seen the glory of the one and only son, right, who came from, came from the father, came from God. 
And he was full of, say those words out loud, grace and truth. He was full of grace, but he was also full of truth. I like to say it this way sometimes to help people see that really the real Jesus is all grace, all grace, but he's also all truth, right? He's all grace, meaning that when you think of grace, when you think about the unmerited favor, when you think about the unearnable, unachievable love of God, the forgiveness and the mercy and the compassion that he has for you, he is all of those things to its fullest that we barely can comprehend. He is all grace. Yet he is also all truth, right? He's all truth, meaning that there is an absolute truth, not just a your truth and a my truth. This is what our political climate is today, right? A your truth and a my truth, and everybody has their own version of truth. No, there's an actual absolute truth. There's a right thing, and there's a wrong thing, and there's a measure, right? A measure, a standard by which we will all be measured and weighed, that there's an absolute truth. He is all truth, that's who the real Jesus is. The problem is, for us, for most of us, we might agree about that, but for most of us, our best attempts at kind of following Jesus and figuring this thing out is that we usually end up with a my Jesus and a your Jesus that's some grace and some truth, right? I hear the laughing. Isn't that true? It's some grace and some truth. Now, it depends on who you are. This goes back to we shape our Jesus kind of in the image of who we are. I have all of my type A very rule-following, right, towing-the-line people who really see Jesus as a little bit more, like maybe 60-40, right, maybe 70-30, a little bit more about truth and no gray areas and just it's all, there's rights and there's wrongs and, you know, your little lazy boy of grace is just not working, right? It's a, I mean, it's there, but it's, you know, truth is more important, Right? Then you have the fly by your seat of your pants, like, you know, you're just, you don't really pay, you're kind of aloof, you don't really pay that much attention to you or really anybody else, right? And God's full of love and forgiveness and mercy and grace, and you don't deserve any of it anyway, and he's just going to love you, and you just, you've got nothing but big arms wrapped around you all the time, and it kind of doesn't really matter if you do this or don't do this or mess up, and truth is there, but grace is the most important thing. And we kind of craft, again, our best version of Jesus that we can based on maybe some of the things that are most naturally to us. And so we get a little bit of grace, we get a little bit of truth, one more than the other. We lean one way or the other. And, uh, and that's really just the truth. I mean, that's just how most people, most Christians uh, deal with this. They, they have a very hard time finding, really settling with the all grace and all truth part. We just try to find a balance of the two, just a balance of the two. Uh, I want to show you this quick video. When we did this, when we wanted to do the series, uh, we had several things come up in terms of just illustrations, and one was just a hilarious. I'm just, I'm saying this out loud. I laugh every time I watch this, okay? This is a video that was done about 15 years ago by a church in Raleigh. They did it for their youth group, so you're going to catch a lot of the youth group references in this video, okay? To help their kids um, kind of describe, again, kind of in a funny way, the way that most people assume Jesus acted and responded to his disciples when it came to this whole idea of truth and grace. So let's watch this together. He can fly. Here he comes. Well, all right. Now it's time for me to tell you all what you've done wrong since I last saw you. 
And don't try and hide because I'm Jesus. I will find you. Let's start with you, Peter. You lied to your mother the other day. Andrew, you said a naughty word when you hit your finger with the hammer. James, you laughed at him when he hit his finger. Moving right along, John, you drank too much wine the other night. Not way too much, just enough to make me angry. Matthew, we fell asleep in church, didn't we? Yes, we did. And Thomas, you were slow dancing a little too close with that girlfriend of yours. Let's see, and you... I forgot your name, so you're off the hook for now. Um, Philip, I saw you smoking a cigarette behind that big rock the other day. Thaddeus, I hate to say I saw you stick up your middle finger at someone who cut you off when you were riding your camel. Benjamin, you aren't wearing your WWJD bracelet. Jacob, I don't mind you saying my name, but not after you stub your toe. And Frank, you know what you did. I just can't repeat it because I'm Jesus. Alright, all you sinners, come with me. It's time to pay the piper. Love that voice. Let me, if you look it up online, there's like four great videos of that. That, whoever did the voice of Jesus, just it just gets in your head, you know. And I love that at the end where he's just like Thaddeus and Frank, you know. Fra Frank, the, the unknown disciple, right? <laughs> the purpose of that is, again, to understand that like, we, all, we all tend to have this idea of what Jesus was like. And when it comes to this idea of grace and truth, we are always going to lean one way or the other in terms of more grace, more truth. Churches do this. Denominations do this. Families do this. You, individually, you do this. And so to help walk us through, I really do believe one of the best stories that, 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 that I read in the book of John that helps us see this reflection of how John described the Jesus that he talked about being full of grace and truth. And this is at the beginning of John 8. We're going to read this story. Some people view this as a footnote, uh, you know, in terms of uh, the gospel of John for a lot of reasons. But I love this story. I love this story because I think, again, it just makes this beautiful picture of Jesus and an encounter that, that he had. It said Jesus returned from the Mount of Olives or to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he went back to the temple, to the outskirts, the, the courts of the temple. And a crowd soon gathered and he began to sit down and teach them. And that would have been very common for, for him. As he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, they brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery and they put her in front of the crowd. They drag her up in front of everyone that Jesus is teaching. It says, teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? What do you say? Now, John tells us, because again, he's writing this from, from, from his, his understanding of the situation as a whole. He says, look, they were just trying to trap him. They were constantly trying to do this. They were just trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him to take the crowd away, to discredit him as a rabbi and a teacher and all the claims he was making. But then Jesus just stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. Now, I know most of us don't really understand what that looks like. Just picture, just picture your car when it hasn't been washed like in months, you know, and what kids tend to draw and write. That, you understand what I'm saying? Like, it would have been pretty visible. He's writing in the ground in the dust. 
and we don't know what they're writing. If you want to read some scholars and read some of what they thought he was writing, it's fun. It's fun to watch smart people argue with each other, okay? It really, it really is fun, right? They don't really agree. They all have a certain idea. I do think there is some value to the word that's used, to, to the word that's used in terms of the tense of writing. It was a word that was often used in terms of tallying or recording, okay? So it was kind of a recording aspect of things. So I don't think he was drawing stick figures. I don't think he was, you know, necessarily writing names. Maybe he was. But it's, it's probably the closest I can come to a guess is that he was actually writing and tallying out something very specific. He was writing out and kind of recording something that he wanted them to see. So they're pressing him. And they go on to say that they kept demanding an answer from him. So he stood up again and he said, all right. Okay, this is Jesus. They, they want a stoner. They want an executor on the spot. And Jesus says, all right, meaning that the law does probably say that, but he's just saying, look, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. This is Jesus' little caveat, his little condition. He says, all right, I'll play your game. Let the one who has not sinned before, never sinned, throw the first stone. And then he stooped down and again and just started writing in the dirt, which is such a good Jesus move, right? Like he just like, he says this thing and then he just goes on to, to doing what he was doing, which he wanted them to see. It says that when the accusers heard this, they began to slip away one by one, one, one at a time. I love that John helps us see that there's some understanding here that this started with the oldest. The oldest started to slip away first, all the way down to when there was no one left in the crowd but Jesus and the woman. And then it says, Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? This is an important word, condemn. We'll talk about it more in a minute. But didn't even one of them condemn you? Stick around to do this? And she says, no. No, she says. And Jesus says to her, well, neither do I. Neither do I. Go and sin no more. That doesn't matter which translation you read. You can read your message or your Amplified or your ESV, and you can read your King James and your New King James. It doesn't really matter. The words are a little bit different, but they all say the same thing. Jesus' response is in two parts, right? He says, look, neither do I. Neither do I condemn you. I don't condemn you either. Now go and sin no more. Go leave your life of sin. Okay? This is, this is the phrase. Now, we don't talk that way. Okay? I mean, just, this is just us. We don't talk that way. We don't use that language or even that kind of flow. None of us have ever, you know, you know, neither do I give you a ticket, you know, kind of thing. Like, you know, go and double park no more. That's not what we say. That's not our language. So what I decided to do is just to give us some context of what the fullness of this grace and truth, these two words that Jesus says, what do they really mean? What are some words we would use in this context? And the words I came up with this. I love you. Stop it. Right? Let's just all read it out loud together so we can get, get a hangout, okay? Read it out loud. I love you. Stop it, right? This is what we would say. I love you. Stop it, right? Like, I love you. I love you so much. Think about a parent. Stop it, right? Just think about how a parent would say the same thing. 
Like I, more than you could possibly understand, more than you could even comprehend, more than you could even imagine, I unconditionally love you for all that's holy. Please stop it. Y'all with me? We think these two things sometimes play against each other. Play against it. They're at opposite ends of a spectrum. And yet, because of John, we understand that his description of Jesus was so clear. He, he was all grace, and he was all truth. And yet, because it's a little complicated, because we feel the tension, we tend to float one way or the other. So let's talk about individually each one of these. So I love you, okay? I love you from terms of all grace. I want you to understand this is not in reference to affection, okay? This is not a reference to, keep going on the slide. It's not a reference to affection. It's, it's, uh, it's how we would use the phrase, the love for one another, the love that Jesus says we're to have for one another, the love for other people, the love for a community, the love for our family. It's not affection like a love romantic thing. It's, it's this love. It's this kind of all-encompassing, you know, acceptance and forgiveness and grace and mercy and, and compassion, right? It's love, I love you, all grace. Now, we might use the same words in our culture, that we need to love one another, and they deserve to be loved, and I deserve to be loved, and there's an essence of, we use the same language in terms of how we should treat one another as the fact that we should love one another. And many times when we say it, we're talking about the idea of tolerance and acceptance, that it shouldn't matter who they are, and it shouldn't matter what they've done, and it shouldn't matter where they came from, and it shouldn't matter how they live, and it shouldn't matter the decisions they make and the words they say. Like, we should be tolerant and patient, and, you know, we should, and we should just love one another, and that we should just accept everyone. It doesn't really matter. We want to accept them, and they'll accept us. And when we culturally sort of use that language, the problem with using that language culturally in our idea, in our mind, is the fact that we are doing it with, with a heart to try to raise and elevate the value of people, right? The value of people, that they deserve to be loved. Like we shouldn't treat anyone worse than another person, right? Nod your head if you're with me, right? This is how we deserve to love each other, this tolerance and this acceptance. But here's the problem. That is not the same love that you receive from God when it comes to being all grace. When we, our attempts to raise the value of people actually diminishes the grace and the love of God the way we see it. And here's the reason why. Because the grace, this unmerited, un, you know, unearnable, unachievable favor of God that is unconditionally given to us has nothing to do with your value. Right? I say this sometimes when I'm counseling people, and this is why you don't want to get counseling from me. Uh, I say this sometimes to people like, you know, you know, Jesus doesn't love you because you're so amazing. He doesn't. He loves you because he's amazing. Everybody with me? Like, it's not you. Trying our best to raise the value of people. I'm not saying we're not valuable. We're God's creation. Like, he loves us more than you could imagine. But our attempt to raise value of people in words like love and grace and forgiveness actually is nothing in comparison to the love that actually we receive from God. Because that grace, that fullness of grace, that full all grace doesn't have anything to do with you, has everything to do with him. 
Here's how we see it played out. We see Paul in the scriptures writing it out for us to give us examples that this is how, this is how we see how very much the Father loves us. For he calls us his children because that's what we are. But our relationship with God is not we chose him to be father. Our relationship with God is because he chose us to be his. It comes from him. Goes on in, in Romans to say, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still what? Yeah, while we were still sinners. He expressed that kind of love. Think about you at your very worst, right? Think about you at your very worst. I'm talking about so worst that no one has ever actually seen it. And yet, that's how much he loved you. So it's not a value thing for you. It's his love. It's his, the fullness of this grace that he gives you. It goes on to say in Romans 5, 5, that we know how dearly he loves us because he's given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with this love, that we get to experience it. There's so many verses we could read, but I love this one. This is in... In Ephesians, that Paul is praying for the church to understand this love. He says, I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he'll empower you through that strength of the spirit that lives in you. He says, Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust him, and your roots will grow down deep into God's love and keep you strong. And then here's the key, that you may have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide and how long and how high and how deep his love really is. And I love how Paul kind of says, he's going to give you the power to understand it. However, you're going to experience the love of Christ, although it's too great to understand. Like, I think Paul's clearly understanding. Like, I want you to have the power to understand it probably to a degree. But you're going to experience it more than anything, probably even beyond what you can understand it. Then he says that you may be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Uh, we use the word grace here at the church as a value of our church. And as a value, we, uh, the phrase we use is this. The phrase we use is that there is nothing that you can do to make God love you any more than he already does, right? There's nothing you can do. Like, again, this is an unearnable, you can't achieve it, you can't score points with him, you can't do anything anything to make him love you anymore. The fullness of love, all grace, all love is yours. But it's also, there's nothing you have ever done that makes him love you any less. Right? There's nothing you've ever done. Again, while you were sinners, at your very worst, he demonstrated his love for you. There's nothing you've ever done that makes him love you any less. This is the grace of God. This is the unmerited favor and, and mercy and compassion and love and forgiveness of God expressed in the words when you hear the words, I love you from God. This is, this is something that, that many people need to hear. Usually when you hear this passage, Romans 8, or, uh, John 8, the first part, most people are teaching this from the standpoint of, of love and, and grace because it was such a legalistic moment. It was such a, a law-abiding moment that we need to kind of highlight the grace of God there, and I understand that. And yet Jesus responded with all grace and all truth. And people need to experience that love, that fullness. They need to understand it as best they can. But the problem, and the reason that most people don't get to experience the fullness of that all grace and all love is because of sin. 
It's because of their sin. See, our sin creates distance with God. Our sin creates a wedge, creates distance. And it keeps us from fully experiencing his love for us. Now, I'm not talking about the distance, the gap, the, the, the thing you couldn't control in terms of sin, in terms of its nature that separated us from God. That is still true. I'm talking about as believers, as followers of Christ, as people who put their faith in God, your sin creates distance every time you sin. Every, every evil thought, every wrong action, every impure motive, Right? Every, every, every single thing that you give into, every time you want to live your way instead of God's way, every time you choose selfishness over generosity, every single time you create distance between the closeness of your heavenly Father. That's what sin does. It creates distance. So we don't get to experience this love that we're talking about. And the problem is, again, when we create enough distance... That's where shame creeps in. That's where guilt creeps in. That's where these, these chains of sin and death make us, we believe the lie that we're still trapped there. We, and we start believing, you know, Matt's preaching about this kind of love, but I don't think he loves me that way. Matt's talking about this kind of love, but and I know he loves maybe my spouse that way, but I'm not sure he loves me that way. He loves my friends. I know people in my life group. He loves them that way. I just don't think he can love me that way. The distance that's created. And it's only by accepting the love of God. It's only by accepting his grace and his forgiveness that we can bridge the distance anyway. It's not anything we can do. So we're sometimes caught. Which is why churches, and this church in particular, why we will constantly be preaching things like, I love you, says God to the fullness that you could possibly not even fully understand, to the way in which you could only experience it. You need to understand how much he loves you, how, how much grace is there, how much forgiveness exists, how much he hates that shame and guilt and change you've placed on yourself. And so all the grace people in the room are just like, yes, amen. More sermons like that. And all the truth people are just like, that's true. That's true. But, but, Jesus is full grace. He's all grace, but he's also all truth, right? He's all truth. Listen, if you're, go to the next slide. If when you're doing something and you picture Jesus and you guys are having a conversation and you don't ever hear your Jesus say, stop it, it might not be the real Jesus. <laughs> That's all I can say. You want to know why? Because Jesus hates sin. He hates it. Like more than you could possibly imagine. He hates it. And he will never, hear the words, he will never be okay with it. Never. He will never be okay with you lying. He will never be okay with your gossip. He will never be okay when you get a little tipsy because you don't know how to control your drinking. He will never be okay with how you handle yourself sexually. He will never be okay with it. You hear the words? Never. He hates sin. 
And we, you know, we can bring our arguments to him about well, what really is a sin and what we think should be called a sin. Guess what? We lose. God is the originator of all things, and he's the one who decided what sin was, and so he's the only one who gets to judge what sin is. We lose that argument right out of the gate. And he's never going to be okay with it. Never. And the fact that we, we get the messages and all, oh, it's all grace, and God, he became a man, so he gets me, and he understands, and he knows that's just my anger problem, and he knows that, well, that's just a little weakness of mine, and he knows that I made a few mistakes, and, well, he's okay. He's never going to be okay with sin, ever, right? And all my truth people are like, just preach it, right? He's never going to be okay. He is always going to say, Stop it. And we feel like sometimes these are just pulling away from each other. We feel the tension. They're pulling away. They're pulling away. And so Paul tries to address it, helps us try to bring it together. It doesn't really, these things aren't actually opposing. He says this, which I love when he just asks questions. Sometimes Paul just writes and asks questions for our behalf. Since God's grace has set us free from the law, free from these rules, does that mean we can go on sinning? Of course not. I add dummy sometimes to that for my own sake, right? Of course not, fool. Why? He said, don't you realize that you become a slave to whatever you choose to obey? You're, you're, you're in chains to whatever you choose to obey. Now, you can, you can obey, you can be slave to sin and lead to death, and you can do that, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to a righteous life. But you're going to make a choice, and you're going to be slave to whatever you choose. So no, no, you cannot, you cannot, because of grace, continue to sin and be okay with it, because he's not okay with it. He goes on to say this in Romans 8, and this is, something, again, this is one of those verses our grace people love. But he goes on to say, look, there now, so now, and there's a, another translation that says, therefore, and what, what that means is basically based on everything else he has said up to this point in Romans, he says, so now, understand that now there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation to those who belong or those, those who are in Christ Jesus. And he says, and because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. You've been freed. Then he goes on to say that the law of Moses was unable to do this. It was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God had to do what the law could not do because, because just following the rules wasn't enough. It was never going to be enough. He says God had to step in. And he goes on to say he sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving us his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He said, that's how I'm going to end this. I'm going to end this. There is, no, there is no condemnation. And we get a little bit like, we, little, we, we kind of misunderstand it sometimes. I've heard people talk about the John 8 example, about, well, Jesus said, well, neither did I condemn you, so he doesn't judge me. <laughs> that's not true. You know, to condemn someone is to curse someone in the moment. To condemn someone is to sentence them. It's to, think about the, the, the accusation. They bring this woman, who I don't know if they had her kept in, the, in a jail, if it was in the moment. I don't even know if she was fully dressed in that moment. She was being paraded up in front of the crowd and going to be executed in the moment. That's what condemn means. 
They're going to condemn her right there. The worst thing about you is going to be the thing people remember forever about you. That's what condemnation is. He says, no, 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 there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Your worst sin does not define you. Your worst act will never define you. There's no condemnation. Is there judgment? Yes. Yes. If you don't get it from the Gospels, read Revelation. Okay? We're going to be held in account for everything. Okay? All truth. Not just all grace. All truth. Everything you thought, said, did, didn't do is going to be measured and weighed according to the absolute truth of his word, and you will be judged. Now, that's just the final judgment, let alone the fact that we live in a system that he created, the system we live in this life, that judgment already happens. Why? Because we get the consequences of sin. Am I right? right? So judgment's already there. He's already created a system that judgment's going to happen. You know, you're going to get judged. You know, your lies are going to catch up with you. Did you know that? Your drunkenness is going to catch up with you. Your secret sin, the thing that you don't think anybody knows, is going to catch up with you. It's going to affect your life. You may not even realize it till it's over, but judgment still happens because we're still going to be accountable to God. We're never not accountable for what we say and do and don't do. Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. That's what he is. And yet sometimes, again, we want to be all grace. Oh, he loves you. True. Stop it. Also true. Right? And here's how it works. Again, I think parents get a little, maybe a little glimpse of this with our own children, is that for the real Jesus, he's compelled by love to rebuke and challenge and discipline our sin. See, it's because he loves you. It's because of this full, unmerited, unfavor, you didn't earn it, you can't achieve it, love that he has for you, that he cannot allow you to continue to sin. He can't. He's going to challenge you and rebuke you. He's going to say, yeah, dummy, you're wrong about that, okay? No, your negative thoughts and your twisted way of thinking, you are wrong about that, right? He's going to do that because he loves you. He's going to love you to the point that he's going to say, stop it. If you'd never hear Jesus say, stop it, I don't know if that Jesus loves you very much. His love, that love that we just described, compels him to rebuke your sin, to challenge you on your thinking, and to discipline you. You understand? I mean, again, I think as a dad, I, I just feel it sometimes as a dad, you know? And my kids want to be my friends. I love my children. Listen, my two teenagers are getting a little more mouthy. You know how this. And I love them. I love them to death. And sometimes, you know... They'll try to pull it off. They'll try to skate by some of their, their decisions and be like, oh, dude, oh, bro, don't, you know, you know, that kind of thing. And I'm like, I, and I, you hear Tracy say, I respond. I'm like, dude, I ain't your dude. I ain't your bra. I ain't your buddy. I'm your dad, right? Like there's just certain things I'm not ever going to be okay with. And it's the same with God. Like he is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He is. He's a father who loves you more than you could possibly imagine. 
He is. He's also the one that's going to discipline you. Just like David. David, who, King David, who was a man after God's own heart, through the prophet, God said, everything that you did in private, I'm going to put on the front lawn for everyone to see. Oh, discipline happens, people. Whether it's by natural consequences or divine intervention, we will, rebuke, we will be rebuked, we will be challenged, and we will be disciplined because we are accountable. We will be judged. No, we are not condemned, ever. But Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead, and his love has no other choice but to compel him to say, stop it, stop it. And why does he, look, why does he say stop it? Because what? Say it out loud. Say it out loud like you believe it. I love you. That's what he's saying to you. I love you more than you could ever actually comprehend. And because he loves you, he says what? Oh, say it like you're a parent. Yeah, there you go. Stop it. And he says stop it because he loves you. And he loves you so much. He has to say, stop it. Everybody with me? And so here's my goal. This is a hard one to walk away from because I'll be honest, it's not a quick fix. This isn't a quick fix. This isn't just one of those light switches you turn on and go, oh, I didn't know that. You know, and you walk out the door and everything's fine. It's just not. It's part of the process of sanctification. It's part of us continuing to grow to be more and more like Christ. My prayer, my prayer, I prayed it this morning. My prayer for you is that, you know, I know, I already know. I already know that you lean one way or the other in your life. I know you do. I'm praying that this week, when all of a sudden you fall under the guilt and the shame of some decisions you've made in your life and the enemy begins to get a foothold in some of the distance that you've allowed to be created because of your sin and your relationship with God, I'm praying that you hear more clearly than you've ever heard before, I love you more than you could possibly know. I'm praying that you'll begin to hear that. I'm also praying for, for all of us that whenever we have that sin and we, we step back into that thing that's got us in maybe a habitual pattern and we do that thing and we find another night where we drink a little bit too much and we make a decision at work that we know is probably not on the above bore and we do all of that and right when that instinct in you wants to go justify it to God that it's not that big a deal and it's not that big a sin and it's not just a little white thing and it doesn't happen all the time. I'm praying that you'll finally hear, maybe for the first time in your life, Jesus say, stop it. No, there is no condemnation, but stop that. Stop it. I love you too much to not rebuke you and challenge you and discipline you in that. That's my prayer. My prayer is that all of us will begin to move not to a better balance of grace and truth, but to really seeing and recognizing and wrestling with the God we follow, the Jesus we love, that he is the fullness of all grace and he is the fullness of all truth. Let's pray together. Father God, I'm, I am thankful. Even, even in my life as I've taught this and shared this many, many times, God, that I just know. I know I lean one way more than another way too much. Way too often I'm easily able to justify one side of you versus the other. And God, I just confess that. And I know that 
If we are faithful to confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and, and to cleanse us from that unrighteousness. And God, as a, as a church today, and for those who watch later online, God, I pray that we would, we would understand that your love is, just compels you to tell us to stop it. And you, you will continue to discipline and shape and challenge and rebuke us because you love us beyond what we could imagine. And God, I don't really know if it's possible for us to understand completely the fullness of those two things. But Jesus, we want to get better. We don't want to be stuck in just the my version and the your version and the their version of a balance of that with you. May we continually press in to be able to accept and share the fullness of grace with others and receive it ourselves. And may we be able to accept and share the fullness of truth with others and ourselves because we know that's you, the fullness of both. It's only by your power that we can do this and it's only by your power, God, that we can experience the beginning of those changes in our life. And we pray that you would be actively moving by your spirit this morning in us, in this time, in this place right now. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.